Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Not Safe for Wonks. Brandon Buchanan here is here. Kennedy Cooper is here. Leia Rose. Leia Rose is frantically in transit. Uh, hopefully, she'll stumble in like 20 minutes in. Like, uh, who's the guy from Seinfeld, that very old television show that nobody remembers? Uh, <laughs> uh, Kramer. Kramer. <laughs> Our buddy Kramer. Uh, she might do a Cosmo Kramer. But luckily, our guest is a is a woman of impeccable timing and is always here. Lindsay Boylan, uh, I have nothing to add. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you all so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. It's going to be fun. Yeah, we've awesome. been really looking forward to this. Absolutely. We were also excited to have uh, our other host, Rachel Kahn, uh, here to kind of throw some questions at you. But, uh, you know, the, the trials of working motherhood, sometimes you can't always like be where you want to be at all times. But, uh, well, Rachel, you might actually hear my five-year-old at some point, you know, coming oh, yeah. out of here. So <laughs> I get Rachel, that completely. Rachel has a kid of like the exact same age. So, oh my uh, gosh. yeah, she's definitely here with us in spirit, which is really wonderful. Um, wonderful. So to, to the people who live under a rock and aren't following you on Twitter, aren't on Facebook, uh, haven't seen your other great appearances, can you tell people a little bit about... Uh, who you are, where you're from, your district, and uh, what inspired you to get started here? Sure, sure. Thank you. So my name's Lindsay Boylan. I'm a Democrat. I'm a progressive, a proud progressive, running in New York's 10th congressional district, which uh, includes the west side of Manhattan, lower Manhattan, and parts of Brooklyn. And I've lived in New York since I graduated from college and came to the city with 100 bucks in my pocket. I've moved maybe 10 10 times in, in, in about a decade. So I've lived all over the city. Um, and I'm running now because this happens to be the most unequal district in the country by some measures. So we have everything from Wall Street, literally includes, the district includes Wall Street. And then we have um, thousands of people living in public housing that's really substandard in quality. And basically the federal government and the state government walked away decades ago from, from really effectively managing and funding it. Um, and something's got to give. I'm a mom uh, of a five-year-old and she is my husband and, and my life. Um, and... My whole approach to getting engaged in, in government, which I've basically done in some way, shape, or form since I graduated from college, has something to do with, um, you know, very early on in my childhood growing up in Southern California, daughter of a Marine and um, a mother who originally was a single mother of my sister at 16, you know, like most of us, have had a lot of complicated, um, you know, complicated issues growing up. And the way I dealt with it was by uh, saying that someday I was going to make it right. You know, I, uh, every time something really bad would happen, or I'd observe something really bad, uh, or complicated or a problem, I'd make a mental note and, you know, try and place myself in a position to do something about it. And I think I've been sort of chasing after that concept my whole life. Um, and I feel like, we are at this pivotal moment, not just in this district where I'm running and we're going to win, um, that is the most unequal, but in the country and in the world where our house is on fire and all the adults have somehow left the room. That's the perception I have. And it's not, of course, it's Donald Trump, but it's actually, 
the establishment as a whole. Those are not just Republicans, they're Democrats. In many cases in my city, in my state, it's exclusively the Democrats that I think are um, holding up progress and making it difficult for uh, positive change to happen. And, um, you know, my experience, at least early on in my life, uh, was that, you know, it's frequently uh, the women who come in when, you know, all other options have been exhausted and uh, take care of business. And that's what I am going to do. Um, and I'm excited about it. I am running against a de fellow Democrat, uh, which is, I think, you know, <laughs> what a lot of people are doing right now because we want to see change. Uh, his name is Congressman Nadler, and he's been in Congress for about 30 years, and he's passed three pieces of his own legislation into law um, during that time. Two of those things are ceremonial. And so when I look at what's happening and where we need to go and not just looking at Donald Trump and getting rid of him, which I want to, but looking at what we really need to do systemically to change the country and the city and my district, we got to get, we got to get someone who's going to wake up every day with that goal in mind and have the energy and have the wherewithal to show up at, in every community and listen and act on that. And we haven't had that. I haven't seen it. And, um, you know, I think that's very representative of what you're seeing across the country. People are angry and people are frustrated and I'm not going to wait on the sidelines anymore. And I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me it's my time because of course it's never going to be my time. And I'm excited. I think when we talk about, um, mobility and, and like fiscal yeah. health, for people who are yes. in your district, and especially for women in the district, there is obviously the glass ceiling is remarked a lot uh, in terms of the challenges that upwardly mobile women face when they're trying to break through to the next level. But there's also someone coined uh, a few weeks ago, and it stayed with me, the mud floor. And yeah. you are somebody who's like a, a, acquainted and familiar with both of those things. Can you talk yes. a little bit about what poverty is like in a district that houses Wall Street? And what kind of trials that that has both on like the physical health and the mental health of people that are living so close to what some would say is extreme excess? Sure. This is I mean, this is a great question. So just to, you know, take a step back, the whole the whole thing that, uh, you know, there are, le uh, there are many things about this concept of what America is. And I think it's really hard to quantify and it's hard to say anything without having it be complicated and somehow problematic. But <laughs> The one of the things that I really hold on to that I have always found a tremendous amount of hope in is this idea that, you know, what you just said, mobility, anyone can achieve the American dream. That is what we're sold. That is what we're raised on. Those are the stories we're told. And of course, they're incomplete stories. But the reality is it's getting harder and harder for that, that to be a possibility for people. If you come from the bottom, quote unquote, just, you know, economically speaking, 20% of the economy as a kid, you have a less than 10% chance of doing better than your parent. That means all over the country, a bunch of people are raising their kids, uh, having a, a deep sense, and their kids are as well, that, that they're, not gonna, they're not gonna be able to see a better life than their parents, wherever their parents are in, 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 in lower economic, um, you know, poverty-stricken areas, but even beyond that, in any sort of the, the lower 20% of our, of our country and economically speaking. And that translates into so many other things, including health. Um, a huge swath of women in America are going to live shorter lives than their own mothers. Like those two things together, I mean, 
it sounds um, it sounds sort of scientific, but we are seeing it every day. And um, I think what happens in a district, and and frankly, that is at my core a big part of what motivates me because I, I I believed in the American dream. I was sold that idea, and by a lot of luck, frankly, and a few pushes in the right direction, I've been able to. Um, you know, go to a place that my parents and my grandparents could never have envisioned, right? Particularly having a mom who started off as a single mother at 16 on food stamps. Um, but it hasn't been, it hasn't, it hasn't turned out great for any of the other women in my family. I've had, you know, several generations of women who've um, had severe mental illness and addiction issues and several still struggling with that. And um, my younger family members don't have the same sense of hope that, um, that would be the gift I would want to give to them. And it's heartbreaking to see in my own family. And, you know, uh, we could go, we could talk about our own families for a whole hour, hours, but, you know, in many cases, we can't always fix what is going on in our immediate lives and our immediate families, but we can absolutely do something about the broader society and what is happening. And that's sort of how I found my reason for being in a lot of the things I'm interested in, including mental health, which we can talk about, and you mentioned in that question. But what is what does that look like in a district like this, where we have some of the wealthiest people in this country? Um, some mo- many of the billionaires um, reside in New York or have apartments, and and certainly a, a fair number of them. Uh, I think uh, by some statistics in New York City alone, uh, over a hundred billionaires are, reside here. So you know, not just my district, but certainly a big part of that is is here. But then you have Fulton Houses, which is right down the street from me, which is um, public housing. Uh, NYCHA's public housing, and it, is, it has been historically a, a really important place for people to be able to raise their families. Now, now my sense is there's this, this feeling of that I'm hearing about suffocation because everything around you, all of the grocery stores you would go to, all the shops you would go to, everything is changing. And in fact, it's even worse than that because you're living in buildings that are crumbling and not being maintained to humane standards. So for instance, you're going winter where you may lose heat or hot water is happening pretty regularly across the city to public housing. And, and you're being told that one way that the city is going to try and pay for improvements to all of public housing is by building over your parks or by building over your, your parking lots, uh, important assets in a complex that has been your home, maybe your parents' home their whole lives. It, it, it feels um, there's such a sense of injustice. And I have to say, no one that I talk to, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, feels good about that. We know that there is going to be a reckoning. And my, and my concern is, what does that look like? And how do we make it um, constructive? Because there's no way that this can continue, this, this extreme gilded age. We have to do something about it. Um, and we're going to. And my hope is that we do it by... Um, really investing in people that in a way that we walked away from within the Democratic Party in in the early 90s even um, and that we invest in Medicare for all and that we that we deal with a truly visionary housing program for the next century not just for families but also for seniors one in in I think it's one in five people in New York City in the 2030s are going to be seniors we don't have housing for them that number um, we're not even accommodating. We're not even thinking in real terms about how to prepare for these things. And so there's a lot of frustration, but there's a lot of shared 
awareness that we have to do something about it. This cannot continue. And, and that's the one most promising thing I find. But what I also find is a political system that is set up to just keep the same people elected. And if you keep the same people elected, you uh, don't have to really challenge the status quo at all. You don't have to hard, has, ask the hard questions. You don't have to prepare for the future because, frankly, you're probably not going to live as long. Um, you know, you're not going to live to see the, the choices that you make bear fruit or hurt the next generation. And I think that tension of a lot of the next generation of people running is because we know that there's no time to waste, whether we're talking about extreme inequality or climate change or mental health, and they're all interconnected. Um, and, you know, it's just it, every issue connects to another one. I mean, if we if you're familiar with the city and some of the criminal justice reform conversations that we're having, like we're having across the country, um, Rikers Island um, in New York City is going to be closing down. But the question has been, what do you what do you? Where, where do you place where do you place people? Do you need as many um, do you need as many beds for for the future when hopefully we have fewer people imprisoned and in the criminal justice system? Well, let's talk about the fact that forty percent of people in Rikers Island have serious mental illness, and if we dealt with people through in very different ways from the beginning of their interaction with the law or even before that in academic environments or home environments that help people, um, you know, treat PTSD, uh, treat systemic poverty and the things that affect so many families, how would we be in a very different place? And, um, you know, there are real solutions to all of these things. Some of them, you know, we have to continue to work on, but housing program for the next century, fully investing in NYCHA, which is our public housing, dealing with climate change, having Medicare for all that truly in, in focuses on mental health as well um, and comprehensive mental health, like we think of physical health, those things would change the world um, and they would change this district. And um, in order for those things to happen, we know that we need to elect new people. And I think, you know, you have people on your, your program regularly who, who I share a lot of things with in terms of our, pol our views of how the world should be. And we're going to get enough of those people elected across the country to start to make some changes. Um, so, yeah. I know one person that we've had on the show that talks a lot about the intersection between criminal justice and uh, punitive measures and mental health is Janos Martin. He's running for Manhattan DA. And he yes. literally talks endlessly about how sometimes our, our, our prescriptions for dealing with problems, generally criminal justice, but really in a wide variety of policies are like self-perpetuating. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, having had—I I mean, I come—I am not um, a defense attorney. I haven't worked, you know, in in legal aid, and so I can't speak from that perspective. But on one level, having had you know several people in my family work work their way through the criminal justice system, um, you know, I can think of a few examples where. If we had had better addiction treatment, if we had had better mental, um, affordable or accessible mental health uh, programs or out treatment or outpatient programs, um, my sister wouldn't have gone to prison. You know, I, I absolutely know that. And um, that's just my, my, my family. And I know I've come from my own place of privilege as I share any kind of story, which is not, you know, which 
I fully acknowledge. But when I look at what's happening in the city, so much of how we treat or avoid to treat rather um, mental illness has a deep connection to what ends up happening to people in their lives. Like there's, I went to about a year ago, um, mental health first aid training that the city was putting on. And it was held in um, the child services department downtown, which, um, you know, is, is a, is a, an important and a tough place to be um, because you're, you're interacting with people who may be losing their kids, having to come and um, deal with the system. And anyways, we, we had first aid training and, one of the things I learned that I, I had no awareness of is um, early childhood adverse experiences. So your ACEs score and, and this ACEs score is really just a way to show how much trauma you've had early on in your life. Um, and the, if you're familiar with it, the more trauma you've had in your early on in your life, things like losing a parent, going through poverty, um, you know, having a depressed parent, you know, all the kinds of things that can cause trauma. The more, the higher your score, the more likely you are to um, die early, to have serious illness, physical illness, to have serious mental illness and addiction, and and have a whole host of negative life outcomes. And the only way that this study was 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 sort of discerned, and that we were able to see all these striking um, life outcomes associated with early childhood trauma, was because um, Kaiser was doing a diabetes testing and a, a diabetes research study, and they found these 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 related realities. And it, to me, the biggest indicator there is if we found ways to engage kids, meet them where they're at, whether it's in their school system, whether it's in community organizations. If we resourced things very differently, we would absolutely have completely different life outcomes and we would see a marked difference in the criminal justice system, far fewer people going into it. And, um, you know, that's one example. But another is, you know, I'm pretty involved in NAMI, which is a mental, it, it, very important mental, um, mental illness organization in the city that does a lot of good work um, and across the country. And you, you see how scenarios where someone is in a crisis, a mental health crisis, they escalate very quickly because there are no natural, there is not a natural uh, rote sort of process of who to go to. If you're in a household that someone is having an emergency, a mental health emergency, the natural and only known real inclination is to call the police. And of course that escalates things in a physical and, and, you know, puts things in a very different category than maybe they need to be in, in, in many of the cases, this is what I hear. And, and the outcomes for people who have had that experience tend to be much worse. And I'm not suggesting that um, the police are never needed uh, for, you know, some, something serious that's happening within a mental health emergency, but we're leading ourselves to serious outcomes, having not had the proper, um, you know, across the system investments, investments early on that would really move the needle for people. And that's why, um, one of the things that I think is also really important is uh, something we've we've been able to do in New York City, which is universal pre-K. Even giving earlier access to 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 resources to support families in any number of ways is across the board is going to um, is going to help um, with life outcomes. And we need to do many more things like that. We need to research more how we do systems wide um, mental health uh, support. Um, but all of these things are interconnected. It, we have something like, I think, um, New York Times said it, 
almost 80,000 kids sleeping in shelters at some point in the year on a given year in New York City alone. That is um, un- unfathomable that we have kids who are trying to wake up and go to school, not having, not knowing where they're going to sleep, um, having to spend two hours trying to get to school, not knowing where they're going to get their next meal. Of course, you're going to have challenges. And of course, that's going to, um, in all likelihood, affect the trajectory of your life. Why are we not, why are we not um, finding want to talk about moonshot, moonshot ways to change life outcomes. If, our, if, if one of our biggest problems, in addition to climate change, is that people don't have hope anymore for a better life and the quality of life has not increased for so many people and only for a very minute number of people, we need to, to throw every possible moonshot idea at changing that. Um, and, and that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. And that is intimately connected to mental health, in my view. Uh, what's your kind of assessment about how impeachment is being handled? Because it's, it's, uh, it's this whole protracted process and it's been going on for, I think we're on the second or third day of impeachment proceedings. And there's been a lot of discussion about how, about what was included in the impeachment articles. There's been a lot of discussion about how impeachment is being managed by both sides. So what's your take on how this is all proceeding and, what a better impeachment would look like if you believe that such a thing uh, could exist. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So uh, I, I have a lot on. I have a lot of views on this. I um, because I was, as as you know, I think um, for impeachment, uh, an impeachment inquiry. Excuse me. Uh, about a year ago, um, February around this time, when Michael Cohen was um, in his second congressional hearing basically highlighting again for the public how the future president of the United States during the course of his election um, had him pay off Stormy Daniels so that negative stories wouldn't come out. Now that is, I'm, I'm campaigning for my own office. Um, I know enough to know that that is election meddling. And that is, that is absolutely something that if this person ran a company, if this person ran a school, if this person did any, did any other sort of public facing thing, they wouldn't have a job anymore if that kind of thing came to light. So I was for, for an impeachment inquiry back then. And what this president has, has enabled through, you know, mis- total mistreatment of people and kids along the border um, for the Muslim ban, for any number of things that really cross the threshold of, in my view, human rights um, violations is worthy of impeachment. Now, certainly by the time we got to the Mueller report, which I've read, and maybe there are few few people have in the country, um, the second volume speaks for hundreds of pages how this president in view of the public, using Twitter, obstructed justice and abused power by trying to coerce people to not speak to Congress, by trying to coerce outcomes to evade um, accountability. It was in plain sight. And um, the, general, the, the, the guy I'm running against, Congressman Adler, had a unique seat to be able to do something about that as the chair of the judiciary. And I think... Um, Throughout, throughout the, the year, um, up until the active impeachment process started, when the, the Speaker of the House, um, Nancy Pelosi, basically initiated it, 
Congressman Nadler tried to, um, you know, toe the line that she asked him to and didn't move aggressively. And instead, it kept up. We kept having these false starts of acting as if there was going to be accountability. Um, you know, Congressman Nadler knows that, and he said before that this president deserved to be impeached. However, instead of doing that and going against the speaker and taking the initiative as his own independent leader, he um, tried to have Bob Mueller again come to Congress and say what he said in the Mueller report. Um, and to me, we had a series of these things. Like, again, the congressman said, because, because the, the speaker wasn't supportive of doing an impeachment, um, an impeachment process, an impeachment hearing process, that he was conducting impeachment inquiry through the committee, which we learn later wasn't the case. So there were all these false starts that gave the impression that this was not serious and also gave the impression that we were just waiting for someone to tell us the truth when the reality is we all know what the truth is. This president deserved to be impeached for any number of things. Um, and I think what we have now, I would say the two articles is the least of what this president deserves to be impeached for, um, you know, entirely related to the Ukraine phone calls. You know, this is a pattern that the president um, or showed that he was going to, you know, use whatever leverage he had, use his power um, to his own benefit, you know, pretty much from day one and really misuse it. And um, so I'm glad that we have an impeachment process going forward and that the president was impeached and now we're in the trial in the Senate. But this A is the very least that he should have been impeached for. He deserves a lot more. If we had done this process much earlier, I think all, more articles would have been included. But I, I'm glad it's going forward. And I think, um, I think it, it, it did take too long because by the time we were going first through, you know, Adam Schiff's intelligence hearings, people were wrapped. They were all watching it. Um, but by the time it got back to the judiciary, more people were Googling Peloton by Gad than they were impeachment <laughs> hearing. I mean, I like, I, 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 yeah. and, and, and that was, you know, before the holiday season. Now we're here and I happen to be with a group of, um, you know, civil rights activists and civil rights attorneys in Albany yesterday, on Tuesday, um, you know, talking about budget justice for, for the state of New York. And I said, you know, I got to leave because I've got to, you know, I, we were there and I said, I got to leave because I've got to go catch up on what I missed with the impeachment hearings. And my friend, who's a, civil, uh, who's a civil rights attorney, said, oh, I forgot that was happening. Well, if a civil rights attorney in, who's super dialed into activism and in the city of New York is, is, is not following that we are in the trial portion in the Senate, that's to me very symptomatic of how many people have stopped, um, stopped watching. And I think part of that is because it took so long to really be here and there were all these false starts. And instead of being declarative and being a leader and being ahead of things like the congressman could have been in his seat of power, we waited so long, we meandered and things took much longer than they should have. I think a lot, I think a lot of that is just the perception that it's a foregone conclusion do you have yeah. do you have any vision of any of the Senate Republicans changing their votes on exonerating Trump? Is there any you know, political think, pressure that could apply to them? 
Um, I don't have any vision of that, but I always have hope. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, maybe Murkowski, I think maybe one or two. Um, but I think it's highly unlikely is my guess. Um, but, you know, I, I do have to give tremendous amount of uh, credit to Adam Schiff because I think he's been really, if we could say patriotism and, and patriot, uh, patriot in this day and age. I think he has done that um, because he's made a very good case based on the articles that were drawn up that were beyond his control. Um, he's made a good case. And, um, you know, the, the purpose of impeaching this president, we do want him removed, but impeaching this president is what is deserved and it's the right thing to do. And history will reflect that. And history will also reflect all of the people who failed to stand up and say this is unacceptable, including all of the Republicans, particularly in the Senate. I mean, all this back and forth. Um, you know, the, one of the things I always, you know, no one's a perfect person, but one thing that I always think about in my mind, um, having chosen to, you know, be in the public realm and for office is I'm not always going to do everything right. I'm a human being, but <laughs> I would never want my daughter to be to read about me one day and be embarrassed or ashamed at something I've done. Well, I think um, history will certainly reflect that for, for the Republicans, especially in the Senate, um, who don't, who don't uh, get serious and, and don't look at the evidence that we've already seen and, and don't, don't say enough is enough with this president. Um, and if that is the, the true, you know, the only justice that will be had, so be yeah. it. It needs, to, it needs to be the case. It's been a very long three years. Uh, yeah. And in terms of things that are going to stick in history or things that washed over you and just became background noise in like the symphony of bad stuff, um, there's a lot. What is yeah. it just on a personal level for the last three years since Donald Trump became president? What's the one thing that has made you the most angry? I would say, I mean, it's hard, it's really hard to choose that, choose one thing, but, you know, we have, and it connects to really every issue, but we have the most refugees on a global scale. I think it's something like 65 million people, displaced people, um, excuse me, not all refugees, but displaced people globally. And um, some of that is climate related, some of that is civil, civil wars, civil strife, sectarian strife, a lot of that, even that sectarian strife is climate related. Um, and within all of, within the vast majority of these, these realities where people have had to flee their homes, we either bear some responsibility as a country, or we, you know, in having led to that moment, or we bear, we absolutely bear responsibility as human beings in doing something about it. And I think this past year we took 18,000 people. I mean, that's, that's, that's unfathomable to me. And I bring up this example because, um, you know, the president started his term with the Muslim ban. And that was racist and xenophobic and wrong. And the president has continued to... Um, pursue this uh, backward anti-immigrant -im um, total philosophy that I can I I can't even accept on any level. And then you and you think about what's happening along the border and how 
um, kids have been separated from their parents, hundreds who we may never locate their, their family members and reconnect them. I mean, it's all a concerted, it's been a concerted effort um, and policy of this administration to wreak havoc on a global level and then just, you know, leave people in pain and certainly lead, lead that lead to m- many more deaths and lead to many more problems. And we're not doing anything positive about that. We're only exacerbating all of these problems. And so I would say it's I never quite get over that. I mean, I grew up along the U.S.-Mexican border in San Diego, a few miles from the border. And, um, and I spent much of my college working for college years working for immigration attorneys because I think for a long time American policy and immigration has been completely backward and um, you know I would stop at nothing to provide my kid with a better life I don't care where what border I had to cross I don't care how I had to do it that's the reality of every parent and anyone who doesn't say that is lying and um, if you put yourself you know, in a position where you can't determine where you're born or the conditions under which and how you, you know, what, what the economy is like for your family and for your kids. Um, it's, it's very hard for me not to feel very compelled by, um, by the realities that people face when they're trying to cross borders to create a better life. And um, I've, as I said, I felt like our, our, our general American policy on immigration was backward and mostly racist and xenophobic for a long time. And it's just gotten infinitely worse under this president. And I, I think that's, that's something that keeps me up at night um, because we would, all, we would all do whatever we had to do to give our kids a better life. No one's going to tell me. I, no one, no one tell me I couldn't, uh, I wasn't going to be able to do, go somewhere so that my daughter could, you know, live if I were in a, in a country that was, rift with gang violence or that was hit with um, a climate crisis or, you know, any of these things. Um, and I just think um, it's, it's highly un-American, the, the kind of immigration policies we've had for a long time under Democratic presidents, too. Um, and it's just become exponentially worse under this president, intentionally worse. Uh, I feel as though our immigration policy for a long time has been, let's look the other way and pretend like it's not happening and it's not your family or mine. And now I feel like it's, let's show everyone this ridiculous narrative of a caravan. Let's show everyone this ridiculous narrative, this racist tropes of, of, of something going on somewhere else in the world and demonize people who are, for the most part, trying to just, you know, get by. And so I, I think that's the thing I can't really live with. A lot of times, even when like immigration reform is discussed, even on like the relative left, maybe not the real left, but what we think of as the left in this country at times, um, there's this emphasis on what can immigrants provide to sort of prove themselves worthy? Like, how can we show that immigrants are doing enough or things like that? Um, I would say that a lot of people are starting to think of this as a bit of a flawed argument. Do you think perhaps there's a better way to frame empathy towards immigrants and refugees beyond like kind of what you've already touched on? Yeah, I mean, I I do go back to like, screw someone telling me I couldn't try and do whatever I had to do to to save my kid, right? Like, screw that. Um, So that's just like on a basic level how I see things. Um, But 
you know, I, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the sort of worker based, um, program is it, it, it doesn't, it misses a lot. Um, I think the quotas haven't worked. Um, but I think in particular are, are sort of restrictions on places like Mexico and Latin America, which clearly have a geographic closeness to us should be completely changed. I mean, um, I think we need a, a complete overhaul of the system. Um, it's not many cases that pe people want to be able to, you know, live where they're from for them. For in many cases, people want to be close to family and close to extended family. That's why, you know, we send most people who work in the U S whether, you know, they're sending remittances home. Um, they, you know, in many cases, people just want to make enough to be able to go back. Um, but I think we just, I'm trying to think how best to answer this. I spent a lot of time working with attorneys that were, that were working with families who had, who were in deportation proceedings. And, um, I can tell you that the struggle that people go through who are facing the reality, um, in my view, have that like more a sense of of what is wonderful and what is powerful about being in America than you know than most people. And um, I think a system, our system of uh, immigration needs to change drastically to accommodate a lot more people and make um, make border passing much more uh, much easier and much more regular. I I watched this um, Ai Weiwei uh, documentary that talked about the number of borders um, after I think World War II versus versus now, and we've basically built infinitely more borders. Uh, border walls, excuse me, across the world than we had after the last world war. And it's going in the wrong direction when everything else about either our technology and our need to um, pool resources, particularly natural resources together, is taking us in a direction that should make it easier for people to move. Um, it, I will say, for a long time, I thought I wanted to be an immigration attorney during college. Because I just have this, you know, deep sense of how, how wrong it is. And it's so prescribed. Like, there's very little um, ability to think creatively, to think about people's lives. It's, it's very unresourced. Immigration court has, has so few people. It takes a really long time to have your case heard. Um, in many cases, you have people who aren't understanding what is even happening. Um, I, I think... I would love to be a part of redesigning what that system looks like to make it much easier for people to come and go. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what that looks like, but I know that it's not just under Republican administrations that have been um, problematic and, uh, and very protectionist and xenophobic. So uh, all of our discussions with the uh, immigration economic rights seem like a climate issue to me at, at its core. And what yeah. kinds of things should both parties be doing to prevent the situation with climate displacement getting worse? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I have hopes that the, the, the climate reality isn't going to get infinitely worse, but we don't have adults in the room right now. Um, I think we have very few. I think people like AOC and on this case, Bernie Sanders have really um, helped lead the fight um, on, on trying to deal with cutting off fossil fuel 
dealing with alternate energy, totally transforming our economy, which is very important. But one of the things that I like to emphasize or, or bring up, and I think it connects to you know the climate refugees, climate you know climate crisis, how all of these things are interconnected, is some of the work that I did in with with Puerto Rico um, after Hurricane Maria. Um, I led the state's uh, recovery recovery SWAT team, basically, that was trying to give, get, get together with the Puerto Rican government a, a damage assessment of how much damage, conservatively damage money, or would be needed to rebuild and be more resilient. And it, you know, it's to the tune of, it was to the tune of like $94 billion. And of course, they've gotten next to nothing comparatively to that. Um, but, but our system, our federal government, and um, most governments are, are, are not set up in a way to grapple with these things in the short term. And um, if, if I could, if I could just focus on our government for um, that you have uh, the Puerto Rican Hurricane Maria crisis battling with flooding in Texas, battling with fires, forest fires in California, battling with, you know, I think victim compensation fund money from 9-11 still, that those are all same conversation about limited resources process on capital is 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 beyond belief right like how can you have all of these things um competing through a a a rote process and basically like pageantry um to try and get money for desperately needed you know resources just to rebuild and I think, you know, there, we, need a, a, we need a complete transformation of Congress. We need a pl- complete transformation of political leadership in this country to deal with um, the climate crisis and innovate in terms of um, all of our systems that relate to environmental degradation. Um, but, and I'm going to be a part of that. And I think you've probably talked to a bunch of people and will who are going to be a part of that. But the one thing I would really like, that one sweet spot that I can offer is having seen how ill-equipped FEMA is. Even in terms of the number of people they have staff, how ill equipped is, how ill equipped our creations process, and how frankly racist, particularly in the case of, um, to respond, um, you know, in 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 the intervening months after Hurricane Maria, you know, given accessibility issues, given uh, closure of hospitals, given any number of things, it's I think um, Johns Hopkins. Um, did a study that thousands of people deaths people's deaths could be attributed to Hurricane Maria and slow response, and that is a hur- that is a climate related disaster. And we're not thinking of all these things in the same realm. We really, should be. Um, and we, in order to respond to those things in real time, in addition to um, you know ending our reliance upon um, fossil fuels and transform. And, and getting rid of plastics and all the things, tremendous predation and um, climate change. We need to deal with the here and now that is causing tremendous loss of life, both in this country and in cases like Puerto Rico, um, and more broadly in a global scale. And uh, I do fear that um, we're stepping away not from everything, not, not from, um, you know, endless protracted conflict, like, like would be very important to do, but we're also stepping away from any kind of leadership on a global scale in terms of, we just talked about climate refugees and 
course, we left the Paris Accords. Um, but even on a much deeper level, we're going to have to be a part of that. And if we don't deal with the challenges that people are facing um, with um, flooding in Bangladesh or, or any of the climate-related things happening anywhere, we're going to deal with it later. It's just how soon we're going to deal with that reality and um, how many people are going to have to die as a result. You talked about being a part of a transformation of government, which is something that we here on this podcast support and you know, a lot of people do. But as this progressive coalition gets bigger, there are concerns that, you know, some people may be coming into it with like the wrong intentions or just to kind of like join a popular right. movement with no real integrity. Um, what would you say could be done to especially limit the influence of corporate money on candidates? Yes. Because I think this is one of the most important ways that we can have accountable, honest candidates. Yes. Yes. I mean, and so let me tell you just anecdote. So uh, at some point I was um, a secretary for economic development, the jobs component of the state of New York. And I would go to Albany and I would be basically accosted by lobbyists who wanted to talk to me because they basically wanted money for their pet projects of the state. Right. And I really hated that feeling um, of being surrounded. I was in an appointed position, so I wasn't even in a position to be or trying to sort of seek donations from people. But that system that is on a much grander scale in D.C. is completely corrupt. And in my mind, there's no way you can ever really truly be independent if you take corporate PAC money. Um, and, uh, you know, I think some of the challenges are operational. Like I've heard a lot of challenges about the fact that if you, you know, the, the overworked nature of a lot of the congressional staff. And so you end up having lobbyists who are happy to help you write bills. You know, this is this is like pretty standard practice. How many lobbyists and lobbying firms and consulting firms end up basically writing laws, right? Like writing legislation for congressional office because they're understaffed. That whole system has to go away. Like we cannot have a system where um, powerful special interests are basically writing the laws, which is what happens now. Um, and all of that is tied to campaign finance reform. And, you know, I am for um, a constitutional amendment, um, you know, overturning Citizens United. Um, but I think there are any number of ways that we have to change things. I think there should be a ban on lobbying after you leave Congress, which is, to me, obvious, you know. Um, I think that there are any number of ways that we should make it impossible for you to somehow benefit from or from to, to, to separate at least um, the special interests and private corporate interests from decision making. And, you know, we're at a really we're at a really pivotal, important time in, 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 in America with with how much say. Um, private sector actors have in terms of the, the law of the land, so to speak. Um, but I do also think that any system, um, any laws, any practices over a period of time are, you know, likely to be manipulated. And I think that's why we have, um, it is why we have people with brains and hearts to get in these, get in these roles and, and create government and constantly think, are the policies that I have in place allowing people to live a better quality of meaningful life? And that's the goal, right? To, to continuously um, 
allow more people the opportunities that they deserve to live a better, more meaningful quality of life. Um, and, and, I, and I think it, con- it, re- it requires constant you know, renewal and you can't be dogmatic about anything. So on some level, I think that that's always required, whatever the reality of the moment is. But certainly this, this moment, um, it's, it's, you know, very untenable. Let's just, let's think of another one. Um, you know, the judiciary, uh, which Congressman Adler, the incumbent in the district, uh, chairs will ultimately be responsible for reviewing antitrust you know, the, the, the increasing unchecked power of, of technology and technology companies, a few big companies, to permeate every aspect of our lives, whether we're talking about privacy, we're talking about monopolies that give us few options to make, you know, choices for ourselves. There's some really big questions here. And absolutely every person, including the guy I'm running against, takes a ton of money from, from, tech, from the tech industry. So how are you possibly going to make important decisions that benefit um, all people and make, you know, watershed, um, you know, decisions about the course of privacy and technology, the course of, you know, increasing, um, you know, you know, cross industry. I mean, now, what is it? There, Apple has a credit card and, you know, even <laughs> how they do yeah. your credit checks is, blatantly sexist you know unchecked power of a collection of companies has to be has to be challenged has draw, lines have to be drawn at some point and that's not something we're talking about because we all love you know i'm sitting here on my iphone right and um and i think it also requires a, a fair number of people from our generation to get engaged in these policy conversations and implications particularly where privacy is concerned um and uh we are in terms of being able to make healthy decisions based on um, separation from the people who will have to make hard decisions about, we don't have any of that right now. Right. Uh, so listen, listen, I, we've talked for, I don't know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes for a little while. And I would <laughs> consider you, I would consider you to be a champion of women's equality. Absolutely. I think that's something, I think that's something you care about. But given that, uh, you know, we've looked and you are not a member of the women's equality party. And this seems very disturbing. Bad look. Can you please fess up and explain to yeah. people why you're not exactly. a member of the Women's Equality Party? Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, appropriation seems to be the term of, of, of so many things that are going wrong in this moment in time in our culture. And uh, certainly what became of the Women's Equality Party <clears throat> was the way for Governor Cuomo to be reelected. He created a party to give the perception that women were, um, you know, women were largely supportive of his reelection. Um, and I view that as what's happened to women for, since the beginning of this country. I think we've been, um, you know, assumed to be supportive, assumed to be in play as, um, as, as, as useful as we can be to get to an end goal. And I think in elections, it's the same my district, um, overwhelmingly, the electorate is women. It's well-educated women. It's working women. It's single mothers. It's, it's women of every kind of experience. And there, if I go to um, a volunteer event for a social cause, it's all women there for the most part. And, and yet, my district 
has been represented by a dude for 50 for for 50 years. We've only had one woman ever in this super progressive district represent us. And her name was Belle Abzo. Heard of her. Um, very famous, important, important leader in the in in the 70s um, and in New York. And and we're continuing. We, we still have this place where I look around and every person who represents me, who represents my daughter, is a white man in a city that is 84 percent women and minorities. Um, my congressman is a white man. My, my mayor is a white man. My city council speaker is a white man. My city council member as a result is also a white man. My state senator is a white man. My mailman's a white man. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be, it's not like a ding, but it's just, you know, when, when, when I paint a picture of how many people are left out, it's, I think it's, it's okay to beg the question, when are things going to start to look a little different? Because then I'll know that the interests looking out for my kid, my daughter, um, are going to be responded to. And I don't feel that way right now. I don't feel like the nuance of, let's say, our mental health policy, how it responds to postpartum depression, which I had, is something that Congressman Nadler really gets. And when I talk about, you know, finally passing the Equal Rights Amendment, which is not just going to be a huge step forward for women's rights, but for trans rights. And I'm incredibly excited at the prospect of that after Virginia ratified. Um, you know, I, I want to see women up there championing that. I don't want um, simply a group of men to tell me what's best for me and what's best for other women. I want women to be at that table and a part of the conversation. And what I learned is that I've spent my career making mostly men, powerful men look really good. And I think it's time for women to be at the table ourselves in increasing numbers so that we can add to the nuance of lived experience of what it's like to be a woman um, in a country that uh, still hasn't given women, you know, ultimate control of their bodies, ultimate control over um, their paychecks, ultimate control over so many things. And I think we should be done asking. And, and the Women's Equality Party you know, some clubs, some clubs aren't worth joining. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think if, if we had an extra hour and maybe like you'll come back one day, we can spend the entire episode talking about the history of the ERA and things like that, because oh, yeah. it's actually a really interesting history with a lot of uh, ridiculous bumps in the road. Um, if somebody wants to join your campaign, get involved, they're not on Wall Street. But they, they do want to yeah. uh, hop in and be, be more of a part of it. Where do they need to go online? What do they need to do on Twitter? Where do they send sure. their money? All that good stuff. Sure. I would love that. I would love that. We, you know, we want all the help and we need all the help we can get. Um, info at lindsayboylan.com, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-B-O-Y-L-A-N is a good way to start. And if people can follow us on Twitter, I do my own Twitter, which I guess surprises people. Um, I would love that. I, I try to answer all the questions and responses that I get. Um, it's a lot of fun for me. And just engage with us. And um, I'm looking to meet and hear from as many people as possible. And I'd love to come back on the show. I mean, I think we barely uh, scratched the surface what our future, ah. immigra- what our immigration policy should look like. Because, you know, that, that hasn't been, the issues I hear a lot about are things like housing and climate change and uh, mental health. But gosh, my my passion for reforming our immigration system is huge too. So I feel like we could, you know, spend an hour designing a, a system that we think would be much better for people. And 
I don't hear enough politicians saying that our whole system is completely backward. And it is. I spent yes. my life living, living along the border, and I just know it's mostly racist because I've worked and spent a fair amount of time on the Canadian-U.S. border in, in, you know, near Buffalo. And it's a completely different experience. Obviously, there are many complications, geopolitical, but the reality is we should be, we should be finding a new way forward, particularly in a moment where we have the most um, displaced people ever in record recorded history globally and if we're supposed to be some you know this big leader and ideal leader that's one area where we should have a presence global scale in addition to climate change is is dealing with how to how to respond to the fact that we've got kids spending their entire lives displaced in camps all over the world and 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 then at home and then at home along our border like isn't just a, a faraway problem and it's a problem that is going to hit us one way or another. And, um, you know, again, my, my grandparents emigrated from Ireland to Queens. And my husband's grandparents emigrated from North Korea to Queens. Not around the same time. But I just think it's funny that, you know, how quickly, um, how quickly in, in both of our cases, we've been able to have the great good luck to do wonderful things in in our lives that are even our families haven't had the uh, the same opportunities within our own families to do and i think we get amnesia too much in this country about where we come from and of course i don't want to complicate things with the fact or you know this isn't just a nation of immigrants people were here first native americans and slaves were brought over here i just am saying that we absolutely um, seem to have amnesia about the role that um, immigration plays in this country once you're no longer an immigrant, so to speak. Let's just imagine the representative from Wall Street, Lindsey Boylan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'd be fantastic. It's just completely amazing. Uh, running in New York's 10th, uh, Lindsey Boylan. Lindsey, when is your primary? Class. June 23rd. So we got a little under five months to go. And, uh, and we're excited. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yes. Uh, we're glad that we can be there in the early to mid stages of the marathon. And hopefully, like our listeners, as we grow and you grow and we all get across the finish line together, that would be something I would be completely overjoyed. And by the way, when you win the primary, I mean, I find it just slightly unlikely that a Republican will beat you. I think you yes, will have no. very little <laughs> It won't happen in this district. No. Yeah, I don't see it. So, yeah, Lindsey Boylan. And everybody, remember... Uh, patreon.com slash not safe uh it costs us like a uh, hundred bucks 150 to run the show on a month-to-month basis so every little bit that you do to chip in uh helps us continue to not get paid but still do this show because we're just that dedicated um anyone can donate it's completely fine okay um so on behalf of kennedy cooper and leah rose and the rest of the team uh everybody uh thank you for watching. Yeah, Thank you for a great episode. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye bye.